Jesus was engaged in hand-to-hand combat with the devil. Jesus did not consider the devil to be a figment of the imagination or a myth or an idea or a concept or a fairy tale, but he knew the devil to be a very real enemy, his arch foe, but he defeated him in the wilderness and defeated him ultimately on the cross. But we're going to look at the second temptation today that Jesus faced because what he was attacked with, we are attacked with. The same principle same kind of temptation. So let's read Matthew 4, 1 through 7, and the rumble in the wilderness. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days. And it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now notice, in this first temptation, the devil did not utilize the phrase, It is written. Only Jesus did. The devil just said, Turn these stones into bread. But notice how the temptation changes in temptation number two. It's like Satan says, Okay, you want to use the word? I can use the word. So in this second one, Satan uses the word to attack Jesus. So then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, said the devil, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. But Jesus saw right through it and said to him, It is written again. So what, Satan, I can see the punch, counterpunch, punch. This is warfare. So, Satan, it is written. Jesus counterpunches. No, it is written. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And that was the end of temptation number two. Father, thank you for helping us to defeat the devil in our own life. We know we're in a battle. Help us today, Lord. Will you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to me and give me wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it is written. It is going to be good today. Amen. Well, last time we saw how Satan attacked Jesus opportunistically. When he was hungry, Satan is an opportunistic fighter, that is, an unfair fighter. The Scripture says that after these three temptations, the devil left Jesus for an opportune time. He waited for an opportune time. And what are the opportune times where the enemy attacks you and I? It is in times of hunger times of weariness, times of confusion, times when we're hurting. He doesn't fight fair. He waits for a moment of weakness, and it's an opportune time. And that's when he attacks. And so he attacked Jesus when Jesus was feeling the returning hunger pangs after fasting for 40 days and nights. And he attacked him in the realm of God's provision for his life. 
We saw that his intent was to persuade Jesus to satisfy a right hunger in a wrong way. You know, God made us creatures of hunger. We experience many different kinds of hunger. That's what we are as human beings. You can have hunger for food, hunger for companionship, hunger for money or for provision, sexual hunger. There's all kinds of hungers. And there are legitimate hungers. But the enemy's tactic with you and I is to get us to meet a right hunger in a wrong way. That's what he did with Jesus. He said, come on, use these stones to, uh, or turn these stones into bread. But Jesus saw right through it and saw that he was trying to tempt him to use his power independently of God's will. That he would trust in his own power rather than in God. And we see at the end of the temptation, when Jesus had defeated him, God provided because angels came and ministered to Jesus. Right before the provision, he was attacked to mistrust God. So we called this last week the hunger test. And Jesus passed the hunger test as he had did all tests with flying colors, defeating Satan with the truth that is found in Scripture. And so here the lesson for us was last week that we are to trust God with our hungers and be willing to wait on His timing to meet our right needs in a right way within the framework of God's will for us. Big lesson. If you don't pass the hunger test, you're going to go around that mountain again. And then you'll go around it again. And take another lap around Mount Zion until you learn your lesson. And one of the lessons the wilderness wanderers had to learn was the hunger test. Trusting God with that manna. Jesus said, guess what? I have learned to trust in the Word of God and feed on the Word of God. When, my, when I don't have bread, I've got the Word, and the Word is enough. Now, today, we want to look at the second temptation that Satan brought to Jesus, and it was in the arena of God's protection. The first one was God's provision. This one is God's protection. And we're going to call this the trust test. The hunger test, then the trust test. The first temptation was physical, hunger. The second temptation was psychological. The first temptation was private. Nobody was looking. The second temptation was public. Everybody was looking. Because it says in Scripture that Satan transported Jesus to a pinnacle of the temple. Probably the top of what was known as Herod's royal portico at the southeast corner of the temple. He transported him up to the top of this temple. Now this temple was about 450 feet high where Jesus had been taken. Now a normal height for one story is 10 feet. So this placed Jesus 45 stories high looking down and the people looked like ants walking around as Jesus stood up there, the wind blowing through his hair. He's alone. He's starved. 40 days and nights without food and suddenly a voice begins to speak to him thoughts impulses begin to strike his mind as he is at the top of this pinnacle looking down and as jesus stood there the first temptation had involved instant food this one involved instant fame the devil essentially said to jesus you aren't getting anywhere i can just hear the devil i'm telling you i know the enemy I know the way he talks. I know the way he can talk to men, the way he talks to women. And guys, he appealed to Jesus' ego as a man. And here's what I believe he said to him. 
Here you are, 30 years old, and you don't have any audience. You've got no followers. You don't have any acclaim. You've got no applause. In other words, here you are, Jesus, 30 years old, and your life hasn't amounted to much. But if you will do what I say, Jesus, you can have instant fame. What an elixir that is. How many people want that fame? American Idol, all the shows that we have now on TV, people looking for fame, fortune, money, stardom. And behind so much of that is the enemy wanting to exalt and promote flesh. And here is the enemy coming to Jesus with this, and I can hear him. If you will do what I say, you can have instant fame. I know how to get you there, Jesus. I'm going to make you a celebrity overnight. I'll make you the talk of the town if you will do what I say. Your name is going to be known. You'll be on the front page, Jesus, of the Jerusalem Post. I guarantee. Haven't you waited long enough, Jesus, to be recognized for who you really are? Isn't it time that your extraordinary talents receive the attention they deserve, Jesus? Isn't it your time? Why wait any longer? Listen, I can get you the crowds. I can get you the attention. I can get you the, uh, the fame. I can get you the fortune, Jesus. If you'll just do one simple thing. Here he is. He's on the pen. 450, 45 stories high. Little ants. The people looked like way down there. And he comes and says, just jump. If you'll just throw yourself down. Now that sounds absurd on the face. But right on the heels of this absurd suggestion... Satan attempted to justify it by putting a scriptural spin on it, a spiritual spin on it, which he is so good at doing. He said, for it is written, Jesus, you know the word of God. He shall give his angels charge over you, and they will bear you up in their hands so you don't even dash your foot against a stone. You want to play the it is written game? Here you go, Jesus. This is the word of God, and you know it. Don't think Satan can't quote scripture to your mind. He can and he does. And that's one of the ways he seduces Christians to doing the wrong thing. He uses the Word of God, twisting it, turning it, warping it, so that you can actually justify doing something wrong. I see many people today falling for the same kind of temptation. Here's what was happening. Satan was suggesting to Jesus, your time has come. And God hasn't done anything for you. Look how long you've been waiting. You're 30 years old. You know who you are. You're the Son of God. Isn't that what you're telling me, Jesus? You've got dreams, Son of God. You've got ambitions, desires, aspirations, and time is marching on. Why wait on God anymore? Make your move. Grab your destiny by the tail. Make things happen in your life, Jesus. You deserve better than this. The world is waiting for you. Then Satan cleverly adds another spiritual spin to it. And here's what he said. By jumping, you're not doing anything wrong. You're actually showing that you've got great faith. So go ahead, exercise your faith. Show your faith by casting yourself down. Take your stand, Jesus, on the Word of God. He promises to hold you up. You won't crash. The promise is right there in Scripture. He's going to bury you up in His hand Come on, Jesus, jump, make your dreams come true. And here's what he was saying. Everybody down there, 
probably already people might have been looking up at who is this standing at the pinnacle of the temple. And Satan was saying, just imagine, Jesus, you jump and God catches you about halfway down and holds you up and you are flying, you are floating, you are levitating and all the people will see it and they'll go, he's got to be the Messiah, he's got to be the Son of God. And he says, when they see that, Lord, when they see that, Jesus then I'm going to give you your crowds and your following and you'll be famous immediately by this spectacular miracle that will happen in front of their eyes. Who's that up there floating in the air? Well, that looks like Jesus, Joseph's son. He must be who he said he was. He must be Messiah. So don't you see, Jesus, that's what you ought to do. Let's pull this, let's launch your ministry with a spectacular sight. Now, what Satan was urging Jesus to do was to be presumptuous, not trusting. There's a fine line between trusting God and tempting God, between faith and presumption. Now, let me tell you what presumption is today, because you see, the enemy does this very thing with you and I. Go ahead and make that jump, make that decision, take that leap. God will hold you up. God will be with you. And so often we do that, and we do it presumptuously, not moving in the will of God. So let me tell you what presumption is. Presumption is when we make a decision without a clear directive from God, expecting Him to bless it anyway. That's what presumption is. We make a decision without a clear directive from God. We have no leading in our hearts or in our life to do a certain thing, but we do it, and we say this, well, God will bless it because it's in His Word. So He'll bless it anyway. Let me give you an example. Here is Simon Peter and the disciples in a boat, and all of a sudden Jesus comes walking up to them on the water. There he is walking on water, the water walker. He's out there. Simon Peter, the impetuous one, the compulsive one, the adventurous one, says, hey, Jesus, if that's you, bid me to come to you. And Jesus said one word, come. Jesus stepped, or Peter stepped out of that boat, and lo and behold, the power of God got beneath his feet and held him up, and he walked on water as well. Now, if he had not said, Jesus, if that you bid me come, and Jesus had not said come, but Peter had just seen him and said, well, I'm going out too, and had walked out without Jesus' directive, that's presumption. And he would have sunk, not only in the water, but in the sin of presumption. David the psalmist prayed this prayer. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Keep me back, Lord, from making a decision and taking steps that you have not led me to take, just believing you're going to bless it anyway. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I will be blameless, David said, and I will be innocent of a lot of transgression if I am kept back from presumptuous sin. There's a, there's a story in the book of Acts that I think it's funny, and I love it every time I read it. And it's one of those uh, scenes that I wish I could have been there to watch. Because we read of seven Jewish men called the sons of Sceva who took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over a man who had evil spirits. And here's what they said to this demon-possessed man. We cast you out by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Let me paraphrase that for you. We don't know him. We're not saved. But we've watched Paul cast out spirits. And we want to have that kind of power. That looks like fun. We want to see demons coming out screaming because we told them to. And it seems to us the magic word is Jesus. 
The Bible says that the demons rose up in this man and they said, Paul we know and Jesus we know, but we don't even know who you are. And this one man and the demons in him jumped up, grabbed these seven men, stripped their clothes off. They went running from the house naked and terrified. And they learned you do not indulge in presumption when it comes to God. I wish I could have seen that would have been a great sight you can't use the name of Jesus if you're not saved so here's the way this same temptation of presumption works with us we're walking along going along driving along or something and and uh, Satan whispers in our ear we drive by that car lot and he says go ahead and buy that beautiful new luxury car You don't have any money, but you've got the promise. Quote, let me quote the word to you. And Satan says, it is written, God will give you the desires of your heart. How many times have I heard that? That's the same voice that gets on you in the mall. Oh, God says he'll give me the desires of my heart. I don't have the money, but I've got faith, brother. So I'm going to get whatever I say, or I'm going to get this nice luxury car. The devil says, go ahead, jump. But then the next month, a funny thing happens. The bills come due. Have you noticed how faithful they are to send you that bill? That's the only mail you can really count on. Comes every time, right on time. That's presumption. Or he may suggest this, cut a few corners, why don't you? In your integrity, to get where you really want to be. You can afford a little compromise on your convictions. Don't be so legalistic. You're under grace, not law. God understands your situation. Jump! And you cut corners. And you compromise on your morals or your ethics. And you find out down the road that in the kingdom of God there's no cutting corners. There's only obedience. Or here's one I've seen a lot as a pastor. Are you ready? You can go ahead and marry that unbeliever. The Lord doesn't want you living in loneliness anymore. It is written, it is not good that man should be alone. So go ahead and marry that unbeliever because after all, your love and your faith are so strong. Surely you will lead them to Christ down the road. But right now they need you and need your love. And not only that, says the devil, you're getting older. Have you looked in the mirror lately? You better move fast. You better jump while the jumping is good because you're getting older. You're aging. And after a while, nobody's going to be attracted to you anymore. And he gets you all uptight about it. And he gets you filled with angst. And he gets you to step out presumptively. And oh, what a mistake it can be. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I've seen well-meaning, zealous Christians presume to do something by faith with no directive from God. I've watched them sell businesses. I've watched them move to other cities. I've seen them leave unhappy marriages or jump into ministries that they didn't have any anointing for or any divine directive to do. But they did it presumptively. And you know what the result is? It's always regret. It's always disillusionment. And it's always uh, shattered faith. Where was God? Well, God didn't lead you to do it in the first place. It was presumption. See, we need to learn to wait on God. Remember, presumptuous sin is when you make a decision without a clear directive from God, expecting Him to bless it anyway. But that's presumption. So how can we avoid presumptuous sin? Because, listen, I'm a watchman on the wall, and I'm 
your pastor. And I want to tell you, I want to give you a word today so that you're never sitting somewhere weeping and crying with a broken heart because you moved presumptively when God didn't tell you to. Part of learning to walk with God is learning to avoid presumptuous sin. We have faith, but only for a certain context. The story is told of a ship's captain who had to navigate into a treacherous harbor that was filled with underwater coral reefs and huge dangerous rocks and he had to go in there several times a year now because of the danger of this harbor three harbor lights had been erected in that harbor in such a way that you were safe entering the harbor only if all three lights lined up together and merged into one in other words if you're coming in the way you ought to to avoid the reefs and the rocks Those lights, you couldn't see three of them, you couldn't see two of them. You had to be coming in in such a way that one was in front of the other, which was in front of the other, and all you really saw was one light because the three had become one due to the way, the angle you were coming in. And then and only then, when it was one light, were you safe to enter. Now to avoid the sin of presumption, I have learned to look for three harbor lights of guidance in my life. I will not take a jump of faith ever. I say ever. I hope never. I've learned not to do it as much, and I'm trying not to do it all the time. Never take a jump of faith until all three of these harbor lights agree and become one, until they can become a united light and say amen. So here's the harbor lights that I look for that keep me from presumptuous sin. The first one is God's Word. I cannot emphasize enough the importance of God's Word. This is the premier, primo, numero uno harbor light that we've all got to look at before we make any major decision in life or minor decisions. Can the Word of God amen it? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for godly living. It is profitable for reproof and instruction and guidance and direction. Thy Word is a lamp to my feet, and it's a light to my path. And if I'm about to make a decision that the Word of God can't amen, then I need to back off and say something is wrong with this decision. Let God be true and every man a liar. His Word is true no matter what we feel, no matter what we think, no matter what the culture says. God does not shape and mold and twist and turn and change His Word to suit the culture. He calls the culture to change to suit the Word. He He never changes, not ever, what is written. That's why Jesus defeated the devil so successfully with the it is written because thy word is truth and the it is written is the one thing Satan cannot stand against. But here's what the devil does. One of his most successful tactics is to make you believe that in your situation God's going to make an exception. We picture God saying, oh I feel your pain." And my heart goes out to you. And you know that pesky word? You don't have to obey that word in your situation. We're going to make an exception with you. Because you're you. And you're special. And the devil will come and puff you up. Say, you're so special and your situation is so unique. Surely nobody has ever been in your situation before. You are being tempted in a way, or you are hurting in a way, that nobody has ever experienced before. So God is going to blink and bypass His Word in your situation. It doesn't apply to you. 
Let me ask you a question. Was David special? He was a man after God's own heart, but was he special when it came to Bathsheba? Mm-mm. For the rest of his life, he paid a price for killing her husband. David being David, he wasn't special. Or was Jonah special when he ran from God? Uh-uh. The Lord prepared a fish for him. Jesus said that that happened. That is not a fairy tale. Jesus said as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the whale. Jesus said Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the whale. So will the Son of Man be three days and nights in the belly of the earth. Jesus uh, affirmed that there had been a Jonah and that there had been a whale that swallowed him. And that whale swallowed him because he ran from the Word of God. He wasn't special. God made no exception, no matter who they were. So the Word of God has got to be able to amen anything that we do. And if it doesn't, you're not going in the right direction. You need to drop back and reconsider. Now the second harbor light that I look for is God's peace. Listen to this great verse. I love it. Do not be anxious about anything. Don't worry about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and by petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And what does it say God will do? And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. You can't comprehend His peace. It doesn't make sense. Because you've got peace in the middle of a storm. You've got peace when you shouldn't have peace. That's the power of God's peace. But look what He says it'll do. God's peace will guard your hearts, your affections, and guard your mind, your thoughts in Christ Jesus. Now that word guard is very interesting. It refers to what we might call a bodyguard. And here's what it says the peace of God will do. If you're in the middle, as a, as a child of God, you're in the middle of the will of God, God's peace is a bodyguard over your heart and mind. It rules you. It guides you. And when worry comes and worry tries to attack your heart or attack your mind, God's peace, like a bodyguard, raises up a sword and says this, to that worry, not here. This is a child of God. So this child is not going to have worry, not going to have angst, not going to have wringing of hands, because God has called us to walk in peace. Jesus said, my word is peace. And Jesus said, my peace I give unto you. We have received the peace of God. So listen, child of God, you're not to walk around filled with worry. You are to have peace like a bodyguard watching over your heart and your mind through Jesus Christ. And when fear comes and tries knocking on the door of your heart, your affections, or your mind, that bodyguard pulls out the sword and says, Not here, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Child of God, you are not called to walk in fear. The good news is that we're not called to be filled with fear. We're called to be filled with power and with love and with a sound mind. That's the blessing of God. And so that bodyguard watches over your heart and your mind. But watch this. When we go to get out of the will of God, if we begin to make a decision that is not in God's will for us, that bodyguard says, I cannot give you my peace in this situation. And what he does is he withdraws. The peace withdraws. He pulls back. 
If you're making a decision today that is leaving you unsettled or unpeaceful or troubled, then chances are the bodyguard in your heart is pulling back and saying, I can't bless this and I can't give you my peace because you need to drop back and look at what you're about to do. I cannot and will not give you peace if you're stepping out of God's will. So if I go to make a decision and it looks right in my mind, it feels right to my flesh, I can justify it pulling out a few verses that God's peace leaves me, then child of God, listen to me today, don't do it. Trust the peace of God because the peace of God is your bodyguard. The peace of God watches over your life. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit guides us with peace. He'll do it in your relationships. He'll do it with business decisions. He'll do it in your family. He'll do it in your thought life. He'll do it with what you say. He guides us with His peace. I was reading just recently about Paul and Silas on the mission field. Here they are. They have been called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But they tried to go into Asia, and the Bible says the Holy Ghost forbade them. Then they tried to go into Bithynia, and it says the Holy Ghost stopped them. Wait a minute, Lord, you called me to preach the gospel. Yes, but I'm leading you by my peace, and my peace is being withdrawn. You are called to preach the gospel, but not there, not now. I want you to do something else. And the peace of God pulled back. How many times in a given week do we feel the peace of God being pulled back? I am so thankful that God has led me in so many directions and so many times with His peace. And I can tell you, there have been times I went against His nudging and the peace left me and I went ahead anyway. And you know what it resulted in? Always regret, heartache, wish I could, shoulda, woulda, coulda. You always wish that you would listen to that peace. But when God gives me His peace, and that harbor light of the Word of God says amen, and the peace of God says amen, then I know that I can go ahead. Now think about this today. As we leave this building, if you're making a decision where you've lost your peace, it might be a relationship. It might be a business decision. It might be something that has to do with your family or somewhere you're about to move. And you've lost your peace. That's God talking to you because we are ruled by the peace of God as the children of God. So say with me, the Word of God and the peace of God and the third harbor light is godly counsel. Listen to what the Bible says. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. There are some people, you can't tell them anything. You know why you can't tell them anything? Because they already know it all. You go, let me tell you. So you don't need to tell me. I already know it all. The Bible says there is more hope for a fool than a know-it-all. Because the know-it-all knows it all, so they can't be a fool. But you can be a foolish know-it-all. The Bible says if you're smart, if you're wise, you will be open to godly counsel. Let me tell you a fact of life. There are people around you who love the Lord and love you, who can see what you can't see. They're called friends, spouses, pastors. And we can see and things you can't see and you can see things we can't see because let me tell you the truth about you and me. We see clearly very, very rarely. Paul said, on my best day, I see through a glass darkly. 
We need other eyeballs looking at things for us and other ears listening to things for us. And what God will do is He'll surround you and I with different people who love the Lord and love you. And when you start to make a decision, they can see what you can't see. And they'll come up to you and say, this person you're about to marry, are you sure? Because I just don't get a witness on this. Oh, but I'm in love. Listen, friend, I'm just telling you, if I was you, I'd drop back and pray a little bit because you're about to make a major decision or a friend will come to you and say, are you sure about this business decision? Because I just don't see you there. Or this ministry that you're about to go off into, can I be honest with you? I don't see that you've got the anointing for it. That's not your anointing. Your anointing is somewhere else. And they speak into our life. The Bible says, if we're wise, we will listen to them and pray about what they've said and put the brakes on and see if we are about to miss God. When I was going off into ministry, I just knew I was supposed to go into evangelism. I'd gotten all my evangelistic cards made up, business cards. I had letters from some of the big guns recommending me. I sent these letters out everywhere, and I had people saying to me, Jeff, you're really more of a pastor than an evangelist. And I rebuked it in the name of Jesus. I didn't want to hear it, because I knew that I was going to be Billy Graham part two. So I didn't even listen to them, and I went ahead with all the business cards and all the preparation to get on the road and get on the planes and tear the world up for Jesus. And you know what? Not one response came. Not one. Now, I don't think that was because of me, because I think I'm worth inviting. But I think it was the Lord putting the brakes on and saying, you're about to go in a way where I haven't led you because you're called to be a pastor. And so these same people that had said, you're more of a pastor to me, I ended up pastoring churches and I had to eat. Have you ever had to eat warm crow? Not just crow, but warm crow. Because they were right. And I had to admit to them that they were right. See, the Bible says, he who heeds counsel is wise. There are people that see what you can't see. So here's the three harbor lights to avoid presumptuous sin. Say it with me. God's word, God's peace, and godly counsel. When those three line up, and all three, amen, what you're about to do, you can sail your ship into that harbor. But if they don't line up, drop back and pray. I've always found when I'm moving in the will of God, the people around me who love me and know the Lord will amen what I'm doing. They'll amen what I'm doing. Now Jesus, of course, saw right through Satan's attack and said, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And the devil left him. Two down, one to go. And the last attack, you need to be sure to hear next week because it was an attack against God's plan for Jesus' life. Provision, he attacked it. Protection, he attacked it. The plan, he attacked it. Can we stand together? Thank God for God's peace. Thank God for God's peace. I want to pray with you right now. I pray that you won't make a decision without those harbor lights lining up. Never make a major decision when you're upset or discouraged. Make your major decisions when those harbor lights have lined up. Can you bow with me for a moment of prayer? 
And let me just talk to you for just a second. You may be here today and say, you know, Pastor Jeff, I used to walk with the Lord, but I've drifted. I just took a wrong step here and a little wrong step there, and I've gotten away from the Lord in a way that I used to walk with Him. And I know that He's been nudging me to return. And you saying that is just a confirmation of what I already know. He's been nudging my heart. It's time to come home. And wouldn't you like to leave this building today with God's peace? Because if you've drifted from Him, I can tell you, you don't have God's peace. And there is nothing worth losing that peace. And maybe today you have never known Jesus as your Savior. You've got a question mark in your mind when your head hits the pillow at night. And the question is, am I really saved? Do I show any of the fruit of being a Christian? Or have I just had a little bit of religion? Speak to me, Lord. Show me. And God's speaking to you today. I would encourage you, don't drive out of this parking lot without settling this issue. Don't leave. Why would you? Why would you go down the highway into another day without God's peace? Now, I'm not giving you any kind of a strong arm tactic here, but last Wednesday night, I-35 was completely shut down because somebody coming this way, not a church member here, but somebody coming this way ran to the back of a semi and they were gone. And the whole highway was shut down. Do you think that they ever considered that that day was their last? See, you may never have another opportunity like this one where you could come down and say, Lord, I want to make peace with God. And I'm going to ask you to do that today. If you're in either one of those two categories, I want you to do something. Raise your hand right now. Just say, I'll let you pray for me. Lift it up real fast, real high. I've drifted and I need to get right. Put it up high. I'm looking. God bless you, many of you. I need to meet Jesus. Put the hand up high. Because you're not in this service by accident today. He wants you to know that peace and have that peace and live in that peace. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something. If you raise your hand, I want you to slip out from where you are and begin walking down here right now. Come right now. Don't even think about it. Just come right now. Say, why do I need to come down there? Because it's a step of faith. And as soon as you take one step, you're going to begin to experience that peace breaking through on you. Because our God is a God of peace. And He wants you to leave with that peace today. So I'm going to ask you to come right now from all around. If you raise your hand, come. Come quickly. And we're going to pray with you. And we're going to believe God to flood you with the peace that passes understanding. Let's begin to sing that.